The title of this morning's message is Trustworthy Leadership. Trustworthy Leadership. And so we are continuing our series through the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to pause a moment for station identification. This sermon is brought to you, made possible by the Wednesday night prayer meeting group. So thank you to those of you Wednesday night who prayed for our pastors, who prayed for me. Uh, And so this message is made possible because of their prayers. Well, the New Testament describes every believer as a part of a royal priesthood. Therefore, we believe in what theologians refer to as the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Unlike the Roman Catholic Church, we believe that the Bible teaches that every believer can go directly to Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. You can pray directly to God. You have direct access to God through prayer. You don't have to go through a priest. We believe that you have direct access to God's word. It does not need to be translated from Latin into English through a priest. And therefore, today's passage applies to all of you. Even if you're not a pastor, you're all priests. You all mediate the word of God in the sense where you are called to proclaim the word of God on behalf of God to others. You're called to proclaim the gospel, and you're all called to intercede for other people the way that priests would in a Roman Catholic setting. And therefore, we believe that the character qualifications in the passage we're going to look at today are necessary for every believer. There's only one character qualification that's not required of every believer, and that's able to teach, which we've explained last week why that is a character qualification that's, or a skill and a spiritual gift that's reserved for the office of pastor. Yes, today's passage describes the qualifications for the office of pastor, but you would all agree, whether you work in the business world, corporate America, whether you work in a school where there's systems of, of lots of teachers and then there's administration, or whether you work in any field, the character matters. Even in the secular world, character matters for leaders. And that's what we're going to look at. The difference with us in the secular world, once again, is that every Christian is called to be a leader. First thing we're going to see this morning is the aspiration to the pastorate. And this is just one verse. If you have God's word, meet me in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, where we see the aspiration to the pastorate. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see that Paul begins with a repeated phrase. He says, this saying is trustworthy, and that's the opposite of the false teachers, where their words you cannot trust. Their words are unreliable. It's based on deception. Their motives cannot be trusted. And most importantly, in context with today's passage, their character must not be trusted. So, here's what Paul says. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Now, this term overseer, in the New Testament, it's interchangeable with the term pastor, elder, or bishop. Pastor, elder, or bishop. And sometimes you'll see the function of the overseer is described as shepherding. Pastoring is a verb. Pastoring just means that you care for people. You pastor people the way that a shepherd pastors his or her flock, right, in terms of the real uh, agricultural environments. But in this context, it's an office of the pastorate reserved for men in the church where it's talking about not the practice of pastoring, but it's talking about the office of elder, overseer, pastor. Aspiration is simply what you and I might have heard described as a calling to ministry. 
So if you talk to Christians, and it's Christianese, so if you're new to Christianity, it's okay if you don't understand what it means, but some people say, hey, I feel called to ministry, which they're not saying that they're called to, they feel called to serve in a certain way, because every believer is given spiritual gifts and called to serve in the church. They're saying, I feel an inner compulsion to reach and pursue a call to vocational ministry, meaning I want to give my life to full-time ministry. It's the same for people who feel called to full-time missions. This word in the Greek, aspiration, it literally means to stretch out your arm and to reach out for something. So aspiration speaks of the outward action. It speaks of the outward action of actually taking steps to pursue the calling to determine whether or not you are truly called to ministry. Now, the inward compulsion is the word desires, and that's what we usually think of. It's this inward compulsion, this passion where you want to give your life to the call of the ministry. That's that inward desire. And together with the aspiration, the outward pursuit, along with the inward desire, the type of desire where you feel like the Spirit is pressing on your heart, where you can't sleep at night because you think you're running from God like Jonah. And God says, look, you know what? You're dipping your foot into the pond, but I want you to jump into the deep, deep end like a Baptist and be you know, and, and, and be in ministry, that's when you know you got to go. And he desires a noble task. Noble is not talking about Nogales High School, right? but if there's any of you nobles, shout out to you. I didn't go to Nogales. But noble just means good. And the reason why I want to emphasize that is I read all these commentaries that are noble tasks, honorable, respectable. The word in the Greek noble means good work, right? Task is a work. And it's true that it's noble, but pastors must not enter the ministry just to receive honor. It's really clear. Pastors are not to enter the ministry just to receive honor. Because then you're serving for men, for the praise of men, but pastors must serve God. And so the noble task is, yes, it's respectable. Yes, it's something that's honorable, but it's really a good work. That's the aspiration. That's point number one. Now, going into ministry, before we get into the qualifications, we need to make it clear that these qualifications, once again, applies to everyone, but it doesn't mean that a servant of God is going to be sinless or perfect. In fact, when I first felt the call to ministry, I was 18 years old. I was at one of those youth concert gathering things where they used to do this call. They would do an altar call for salvation, but the very next call, they would have people stand up or to come down the aisle if they felt called to ministry. And you're talking to a bunch of teenagers, so what do we know, right? But I felt the Lord put his call upon me, but then I said, I'm not going to walk down the aisle. I'm not going to stand up because I'm not good enough. I still cursed. I still had tons of sins. I just barely got saved, grew up in the church, but really abused everything that I knew about Christianity, made fun of Christians, and then the Lord saved me. And I said, God, I don't deserve to be saved. If you want to call me, I'll do, I I need to go. If the word of God is true, then I need to be be willing to go. Uh, But I, I wasn't willing to step forward because I didn't think that I could be good enough. Then I realized, oh, that's performance driven thinking, right? Is that What the Lord is looking for is not perfect people. It's the same for everyone who wants to serve God. Some of you, it's not the pastorate, but you're like, I can't be an usher. I'm not good enough. What do you mean? You just have to smile and greet people, okay? And then make sure that you try to be a Christian, a good Christian like anybody else. I I can't do this. I can't serve God. Who am I to counsel people, you know, counsel youth or whatever, right? I'm, I'm not perfect. If Jesus was looking for perfect people, nobody would be qualified, Jesus is looking for broken people, and that's what I had to realize and understand, is that Jesus is looking for humble people, because when you're broken, then you ask the Lord and other people to build you up. Then you're like, God, I'm a work in progress, so you're not done with me. He who began a good work in you will not bring it, I mean, will, (laughs) I am a Calvinist, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. So you're never done. I remember my youth pastor the one thing he said to me that would never leave me when I was saying, I don't think I could be, do ministry, he was like, think of Peter. When Jesus called Peter the rock, the real rock, not Dwayne Johnson, but the rock Peter, 
He looked at Peter, and Jesus knew that Peter would betray him. Jesus knew that Peter would fall. But Jesus knew one thing, that even though Peter would fall, that Peter loved Jesus. And Peter saw, Jesus saw the Peter who would become the apostle, who would write 1 Peter and 2 Peter much later in his life. When Jesus calls us to serve him, he always sees who he's going to build through the service. And part of that is the character qualifications. So if you think, hey, I'm not good enough, then Jesus is saying, well, this is part of my training curriculum for you, that I'm going to get you there. But you need to be humble to be willing to grow and put yourself under good authority. And so that leads to our second point, which is the qualifications for the pastorate. It's one thing to aspire to the pastorate, but notice the rest of our sermon, verses 2 to 7, not just the aspiration to the pastorate, but the qualifications for the pastorate. Let's look starting in verse 2, and we'll look at verses 2 and 3 first. It says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I had to preach in Mandarin this week, so usually I'll listen to the scriptures in Chinese. It's, it's hilarious because um, not violent but gentle, it's literally like don't, don't hit people. So some of you understand Mandarin. It, it, it's really funny. It's like, I'm like, okay, that's the only thing I understand. So I'm like, does that mean that on Monday Night Basketball I can't foul you? You know, literally, it's a pastor. I can't even foul someone. It's, like, it's, lit- it's, not, it's literally don't hit people. <laughs> so simple, right? But above reproach carries the sense of upholding faith and godliness. It means to live in such a way where no reasonable charge can be brought against you. Above reproach does not mean perfect or sinless. It means that when you do make mistakes, they're reasonable and you're honest about it. You you don't try to cover it up. You you tell people, hey, I, I fell short in this area. If above reproach meant perfect, no one would qualify for the pastorate. Uh, above reproach does not mean free from persecution. You see, above reproach does not mean that the world won't persecute you for Christian values. It means when people do try to criticize you, that they don't have much reasonable grounds. That generally, your, your character, for the most part, is honest and respectable. That's above reproach. Now, faithful in marriage is the next one. It says husband of one wife. Husband of one wife wife. And so he's saying, if a man is married, he must be faithful in marriage. He must be known to be a husband of one wife. And every pastor, myself included, all of us, need to stand guard against the temptation of the enemy. None of us can be so proud that we would not fall into the headlines of another pastor falling because of sexual immorality. But here's the thing. I can say this is true for me. Don't ask my wife, please. But faithful in marriage includes the mistress of ministry. The mistress of ministry. You could be faithful to your wife in marriage, but in the pastorate, there's also mixed emotions where you feel like, oh man, I gotta gotta keep working because this is God's work. But at the same time, you want to do well. So you can give yourself so much to the ministry at the neglect of your marriage. And that's probably where I need you to observe me. You, you, can, you can check my location. You know, nowadays your wife knows where you are, right? You know, you know not, not only do we have, um, you know, find, find your friend. If, if it's off, you know, she's like, what happened? You know, she doesn't say it, but like, where, where were you? You know, but also, you know, nowadays we lose our keys and everything. So there's these like tags. So it's annoying, you know, I leave home, it's like, oh, air tag, <laughs> turned on, you know. Um, I thought we lived in America, but, you know, find your friend, everybody knows where you are, right? So you can keep me accountable on that, but where I need you to keep me accountable is, hey, we, we see you serving God, but are you serving your wife? Because she'll tell you, you know, I haven't been on a date for a long time, like our, our anniversary was the last one. You know, uh, oh, weddings don't count as dates. You know, when, when, when someone babysits your kids and you go to a wedding together, uh, there's just not enough time, especially with Pastor Albert gone and me moving into, in the next few years, into the, uh, you know, a higher office. 
there's no time. And so that's part of my spiritual discipline, right? Are you being faithful to your wife? Because a man's devotion to his wife gives you a sign of his reasonable and lovable and loving commitment to the bride of Christ. There's no coincidence why Jesus would say, hey, Jesus and the church, the bride, the bridegroom and the bride of Christ, and husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The other thing is that Paul is really clear, unless he's disqualified, that a man, contrary to the old school Roman Catholic thinking, a man does not have to be married to be a pastor. Paul was single. He was single. And so Paul himself was unmarried. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 35. Pastors, pastors, they can remain single. Neither is Paul prohibiting remarriage in the right context. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. We can't be overly dogmatic about what it means about a husband of one wife. So what it's saying is that you need to be faithful in marriage, not just in sexuality. You need to be faithful in marriage in every component of marriage. But we know that this doesn't just apply to pastors. Pastors are setting an example for everyone in the household of God. We're a family of God. And every believer needs to be faithful in marriage. Wives need to be faithful to your husbands. Next, it's sober-minded. The next qualification is sober-minded. Now, this word sober-minded, it's usually used to address drunkenness. But Paul gets specific later about drunkenness. So sober-minded here, it's best to understand this as talking about taking the call to ministry seriously. Now, this is not just pastors. Anytime you want to serve God, you don't have to be perfect, but you should take it seriously. It is the noble work of God. So sometimes, you know, people get moved emotionally. Oh, I want to go into ministry. Sometimes people are like, I don't like my job. Maybe I'll just serve God full time. It's not easier. <laughs> it gets harder. You get a thousand bosses. They're all volunteers. Okay? Um, everyone can criticize you, and you, you, you can't be quarrelsome. You've got to be gentle. I'll explain that later. You can't be violent. You know, you've got to say yes and smile. Grass is not greener. But you don't want to just emotionally jump into ministry. You, you don't want to just quickly jump into ministry. You need to weigh it before the Lord, and you need to bring it before the church and the church leaders. And, and, and so be sober-minded. Be clear if you're going into ministry. Then related to this, he's, and, and also you know, later drunkenness, it's self-control. Self-control in the previous passage, last week's passage, it refers to restraint and spiritual discipline. The same meaning applies here, that pastors must exercise discipline when it comes to their personal desires. Now, he's going to address like money, right? He says it specifically later, not a lover of money, not greedy. So that's self-control. He talks about drunkenness. There's self-control there. He talks about anger. There's self-control there, right? But self-control is a fruit of the, of, of the Spirit, being in Christ should result in self-control. So this applies to every believer. But you know one of the ways? Pastor Gabe and Pastor Terrence, Pastor Kevin over in the youth service, Sister Katie, you know one of the ways that we have to exercise self-control, and we know it, is the pastor has to hold their tongue. You know, there's plenty of times where if you're not a pastor, there's things that you can say respectfully. Yeah, you can sit in a meeting and someone just presents a pretty horrible idea, and you could actually say, hey, that's a horrible idea. That's, that's actually a dumb idea. That's, that's a misuse of resources, and you haven't thought it through. You know, you know, someone could come to you and say something, you'd be like, hey, that, that's ridiculous. Or you could say, no, 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 I, I don't want to do that. Or, or, or what's wrong with you, right? Or you can stand up in a meeting and say, no, we're not doing that. You know, as a pastor, you, you're going to think those things because you're human. You don't say it. You can't. That's self-control. Self-control. The other thing about self-control, pastors, you know this is true, is one of the greatest disciplines for, for me is when church people say no to you. You guys read about and you hear about famous podcasts. Now they're doing these podcasts about pastors and they're abusing their authority. You know, I, I mentioned last week that a pastor doesn't have the authority of command. They have the authority of counsel and guidance. One of the, the, the most important things a pastor has to learn is that people can say no to you. 
And if they're wrong, or if you, then you need to counsel and guide them. You need to sit down and shepherd them. They're your sheep. So if they're wrong, God put it on you to try to shepherd them in the right direction. And if, if they're in sin, then you bring it to the, you know, for us, it would be bring it to the, the deacons and then bring it to the church, if need be, if church discipline needs to happen. And so I'm going to say this, because in our context, a lot of times there's this honor thing, and we appreciate it, where if a pastor tells you to do something reasonable, like can you sign up and serve, you think you can't say no. How do I say no to my pastor? That's your pride. Say no to us. Because this is what happens in our church, right? Pastor comes, Musu, you know, comes. That's pastor in Chinese. And says, hey, I, I want you to serve in this. And you're like, I don't think I can. But you're like, oh, yes, yes, of course. I can't say no, no to my pastor. And then you go home. And you're like, oh, I can't believe the pastor asked me to do this, blah, blah, blah. And you complain to everybody else. You know what? Just say no to us. Because we need to learn, right? We need to learn. That's one of, you know what's one of the most important things is that when people say no to me, I have to look in the mirror. Why did they say no? Why did they disagree with me? On our staff, we create a pastoral culture where titles are titles. But Pastor Terrence can say, can say no to me. Pastor Gabe can say, Hanley, that, that wasn't a good idea. They, they, they know that they can do that, right? You know, there, there's different positions and supervisors and things like that, but it doesn't matter. That's part of self-control. That's all about self-control. Self-control at its core, when you take it to apply to everyone, it's your desires and disciplining your desires. Basically, you desire something, and you might think it's good, but what if you can't have it? then you need to have the discipline to either wait or wait upon God or just not have your way. How many pastors do you read about today get disqualified because they forced their way or they went around to get something done or they funneled money into a certain fund in order to get ministry done? Right? And so the danger here is when pastors don't have self-control of their desires. We focus so much on infidelity and, and, and those items that we forget about the abuse of power. I'll tell you right now, the temptation is real. When somebody gives you a platform, when somebody gives you a title, it can get to your head. Oh, you're the pastor. You say it. They'll move. That's not right. Okay? So please, it's okay for you to say no to us, even disagree with with, with us. It is our job to preach and teach God's word to convince you that this is the way we should go. And related is respectable. The word respectable means respectable. It means worthy of respect and well-esteemed among the people who know you. Hospitable. Now, hospitable, the term means hospitality. Now, back then, travel conditions were horrible. So everybody did Airbnb, only they lived in the house. Right? So when travelers would come through, there's no Hilton. I mean, even Jesus' parents couldn't find an inn, right? The inns were all taken. So there were a few inns, but oftentimes those inns were like bars and brothels. So hospitality, safe hospitality, meant taking a traveler into your home and within the context of the church, especially if it's another believer. Now for us today, it's talking about the household of God. And so when you think of the household of God, it's not talking about just the act of hospitality. It's talking about an attitude of hospitality. Generally, are you a welcoming person? Now, this applies to every believer, but could you imagine a pastor who's not welcoming? Oh, yeah, I don't care to meet you. I don't want to welcome you. You, you want to hear the gospel? No way. I don't have time for you, right? No, a pastor must be a welcoming person, must be a welcoming person person. So that's hospitality. And uh, yes, it extends to hospitable, the hospitable, uh, hospitable nature of hosting people uh, in the homes. But again, when you extrapolate that and apply it to us today, it's, is our church welcoming? I think it begins with the culture. That's why we push so hard on next steps and first lunch and first connection and all that stuff is because it starts with the pastors. If the pastors are constantly preaching inward and keep the people out type of uh, a mentality and culture, then the people won't be welcoming. 
A welcoming church begins with the heart of the pastors be, emphasizing the importance of welcome and hospitality, and that's why uh, pastors must, must be hospitable. Next, we see able to teach, and as I mentioned last week, this is the ability to teach God's Word. Now, here, just to be clear, it's not talking about knowledge. It's not talking about knowledge of Scripture. There's another spiritual gift called the gift of knowledge, and it's assumed that if someone's given the ability to teach the Scriptures, they've also been given the knowledge of the Scriptures. Otherwise, that knowledge is just for yourself. Spiritual gifts are meant to be exercised. So if God gives somebody the gift of knowledge, then there's going to be some degree of the ability to teach. It's assumed here that pastors have the knowledge of Scripture and correct doctrine because in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Timothy was to refute the false teachers and their false doctrine. But able to teach is connected with a pastor's authority. We talked about this last week, but let me show it to you again. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse Verse 17, Paul writes, Let the elders, that's the elders, pastors, overseers, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, let me just give a little bit of teaching here for you because I want you to know. So in the Presbyterian Church of America, Presbyterian Church, they have ruling elders who are non-paid and lay, and they have teaching elders. They call them ruling elders and TEs, they're, they're teaching elders. And then they call their um, senior pastor maybe senior minister, right? Or ministers because they, they're talking about the function. And so, so in the Presbyterian church, it's divided, right? That there's ruling elders, and they mainly do administration, though they have to be able to teach. And those who give their life to full-time ministry, they're called teaching elders. But then their, their job title might be pastor or senior minister or something like that. In, in, in the Baptist understanding, uh, there is no divide that every pastor rules. Yes, we rule. No, not like that. Not like that. We rule, meaning we exercise authority through preaching and teaching the Word of God. And so in our church, we don't have lay ruling elders. We have the assistance of lead officers. And two weeks from now, you'll see that that's talked about the deacons. And then we have uh, many officers who assist in that office, but we have just paid pastors. So in, our, in FCBC Walnut, the pastors are exercising the authority through laboring, through preaching and teaching. And that's our main task. It doesn't mean that you're always in the Sunday pulpit, but a lot of what you do is preaching, teaching, and equipping others to preach and teach God's word. Remember in Ephesians, and we're talking about the church of Ephesus here, the Timothy's one of the pastors over is that pastors are called to what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the saints, meaning the church, is being equipped by the pastors to do the work of the ministry. So a pastor must be able to teach God's word because the pastor's authority is only built on the word of God. Now, the gift of the ability to teach, I understand it as precision, as passion, precision, and power. Passion, first, is that inward compulsion. If you don't like studying God's word or it's hard, you're probably not called to the pastorate. If you are afraid to get up and preach God's word, it doesn't mean you won't have nerves, but if public speaking is totally not your thing, I I don't know how you're going to do it. And so it's most important that you have a passion, first and foremost. Say, hey, I actually love studying God's word, and I love teaching it. Now, that can lead to pride, so there's something else, precision. There's a lot of people in the church who speak really well, but a lot of times they're not accurate, right? And so you have the health and wealth pastors, you have, you know, famous televangelists who aren't preaching the gospel. So it's not just passion, but is there precision? Precision is accuracy and clarity. Do you interpret the the word and communicate it clearly enough where people sitting in the church say, oh, I feel like God's speaking through you. It's, it's clear. I, I, when I look at the word, it doesn't seem like you're saying something that's off. And, but the most important one that's, that determines whether or not a person is able to teach in this context is neither of those. It is the power of the Spirit, passion, precision, power. Because 
as we've mentioned before, you can get up and preach and even be eloquent, but if there's no spiritual power, and that's why I said this sermon is brought to you by the power of Wednesday night prayer, if there's no power, that sermon's not landing. It's not landing anywhere. I'll show you an example. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Back in Paul's days, there was a Greco-Roman culture where there was a lot of oratory excellence, where people prided themselves in eloquence and being able to make these lofty arguments. And Paul's being really clear that when he brought the word of God, it did not come in words of wisdom or in eloquence, but it came with the power of the Spirit. And so whether or not the Spirit of God has anointed the lips of a man determines whether or not that person is able to teach. Now, within a church, there's other people who are able to teach, but maybe they're not gifted to be a pastor to the office of pastor because their ability to teach is not to the degree where the Spirit has come upon them in the fullness in that way. And then even among us pastors, there's Billy Grahams and John Pipers and there's John MacArthur's and Chuck Smith and then there's Hanley. <laughs> right? It's okay. I know who you listen to on your podcast. It's not me. <laughs> right? I listen to those guys too, so it's okay. Although, I, as I've confessed to you, my preaching has been improved uh, in the last two years by simply just listening to a diet of, of African-American and black preaching because I can't imitate them. I can't just start breaking into song and you know yelling and screaming and calling for amens. But the way that they preach, the conservative ones, there's an eloquence to their words, how they put their words together, how they seem to rhyme, the little cadence and the rhythm to how they deliver. Nothing has helped my preaching more than to stop listening to the same guys that I've listened to for 20 years that I tend to just imitate them because you listen to them so much and instead listening to someone you can't imitate and instead learn from what they can preach and proclaim. And so those are my brothers, right? So that's what I meant by last week when I said the context of preaching that I listened to, the men braid their hair. <laughs> that's also why when I saw Chris Brown I didn't know Chris Brown was a Christian writing worship songs on the last one. I'm, I know it's got to be a different Chris Brown. I think this Chris Brown's white. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, Chris Brown, he beat me to the altar. No, that's a bad joke. <laughs> All right. Well, not a drunkard is the next one. Back to the list of qualifications. Now, Paul is clear that pastors must be, not be drunkards. This doesn't mean that in the Presbyterian church you can't take real wine in your communion or that you can't enjoy a glass of wine. It's saying that you cannot be, uh, you cannot be a drunkard. Alcoholism is going to impact, first and foremost, the harmony of a pastor's family and then all of his relationships. Not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. It's obvious the pastor should not be violent, but gentle does not mean weak. You can be a gentle man to be a gentleman. Every gentleman needs to be a gentle man. That's a true gentleman. You see, pastors, this is important because pastors, you listen to me, right? I'm pretty bold. Like, I have, like, like, you know, I'm passionate. Like, pastors have strong personalities. You ever sat in a room full of senior pastors? You can't get anything done because nobody agrees. No, I'm just kidding. Everyone thinks their vision is the best. It's like, be thou my vision. No, <laughs> You talk about men with strong personalities, charismatic personalities. They need to be gentle, right? You need to be meek. Because you know the word gentleness? You know what the root meaning is? Humility. What it means to be meek is not to be weak, but it means to be humble. And then that leads to not quarrelsome. Now, quarrelsome is related to not violent but gentle, but they cannot be argumentative in nature because you have to work with people here's why you can't be quarrelsome okay it's not just because you can't argue with people okay timothy had to take on the false teachers but he couldn't be quarrelsome how's he going to do that gentle you need to be wise you know in in, in a church context like ours 
You could stand up in a meeting. You can have an older man stand up, stubborn, running his mouth, and, and, you know, saying things. If the pastor gets up and shames him and says, you know what, you're so wrong, sit down. Everybody in the room is like, you're so right, but you're so wrong, pastor, because you just shamed that guy. You got to be careful. Paul told Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort them as a father. So don't shame him. You might say, okay, guys, let's calm down. Let's have order. And then later, you put your arm around the guy like your father. Say, dad, come on. Come come on, on, uncle so-and-so. You know, you just got to listen to people, right? You do that in private. And and that's the wisdom. You can't be quarrelsome. You cannot take sides. Remember what I said. In the church, you have thousands of people, like in a church like ours. Everybody with a different spiritual gift. Everybody skilled differently. So many diverse opinions. How do you get people to move towards one vision or to get along? you got to be a peacemaker. If you're quarrelsome, you cannot be a pastor. So I remember in seminary, sitting there, Terrence does too, where there's certain guys who are so smart, they raise their hand every single time and argue with a professor. And everyone's like, why are you arguing with a professor? And in my mind, I was like, oh, there's no way this guy's going to make it in the church. Every single time, just raise their hand, argue with the professor. Not going to make it. You, you can't be quarrelsome because you need to unite a diverse church of many personalities and gifts. A pastor cannot be a quarrelsome person, and they cannot be a lover of money. This simply means they can't be greedy. 1 Timothy 6.5 says that we see the false teachers are ministering for the sake of financial gain. This is not saying that, that, that churches should, uh, and I'm just going to say it like some Chinese churches, they want their pastors to be poor. That's not what it's saying. That's not what happens in our church. We're so grateful for our church making sure that we're taken care of. There's some churches, I'm going to say it, some Chinese churches, they don't give their, um, their pastors uh, insurance even though they can afford it. And so um, this doesn't mean that the pastor should not be poor, but churches should set it up where the pastors, you, you shouldn't pay your pastors like professional athletes. But you should set up a personnel committee like we have, and you should care so the pastor is not constantly worried about money. I think that's what it's saying, okay? A pastor shouldn't constantly be worried about how they're going to pay the bills or feed their family or whether or not they can live in the, it's somewhere reasonable in the community. You, know, you can't have a pastor ministering in Walnuts but they have to buy a house in Hemet. And so, <laughs> you see why they nominated me to be a leader among Chinese English pastors, right? Pastor Terrence is that we're going to say these things. But you need to take care of the pastor. But the pastor cannot be motivated by greed. A pastor cannot be motivated by greed. How many times do you see it that a pastor embezzles money or begins to pocket money, or begins, because you know in in ministry, people come to you because you have a charismatic personality, or you're good, and they're like, I want to donate to you. You got to go through the church. Don't, don't, don't tell me how much, don't, 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 go through the church. No, 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 you can't write a check directly to me. No, no. You know, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll take the gift cards and gifts, and thank you for Christmas, and, but donations go to the church. FCBC, no, you can't line item it, a certain pastor. You've got to be careful. Pastors must not be lovers of money, and that's going to be clear. Now, the rest of the passage. It says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. Now, he must manage his whole own household well. Once again, this is not saying that a pastor has to have children because Paul did not have children. But it's saying that if you have children, that while those children are minors and in your house, you need to take care of your children. You cannot force your children to be saved. My greatest fear is that my kids will hate Jesus because I'm a pastor. My kids already say, oh, dad's going to work. I'm trying to correct it. Dad's going to work. We're going to church. Dad's going to work. I, I got to work on that. You guys help me. You know, yeah, I know my, my son's going to 
get me into trouble. It's okay, because I got into trouble a lot. But uh, you guys are a good church. It, it doesn't mean that the kids have to be perfect. And it doesn't mean that you can force the kids to be saved. But it means that while they're under your household, you're doing everything you can to guide them, disciple them in the home. But once the kids hit 21 or they're out of the house, we have pastors. Not, I'm not saying in our church, but there's pastors, right? You know who they're good, solid pastors. They did a good job. But as their kids got older, their kids are not in the church. You can't hold that over a pastor. In fact, what happens to that pastor is he empathizes more with many of you who, sh who share the same burden, where you did everything you could while the kids were minors, but then the kids grew up, became adults, and made their own decisions, and now you're praying for them to come back. And so this is talking about, are they managing their household? But when it comes to the church, the church is the household of God. So when you look at a pastor, and if the pastor neglects his family, okay, keep me accountable, for the sake of doing ministry, you want to watch it. You want to confront them and say, hey, pastor, we love you. We know you work hard, but your merit is not built on being a workaholic. Are you faithful in character? Are you faithful in, in going towards the duties of the church? At the same time, there's an extreme with the younger generation pastors. Oh, it's all about family. So then they don't show up to preach. They don't show up to study. They don't see it's a fine balance, right, of working for God. And I think everyone can learn from this. And when it says, how will they care for God's church? You've got to take that seriously. If a man does not manage his own household well, then how is he going to care for the household of God? And it tells you also that the description of a pastor's work is, one, to preach and teach God's word, and two, to care for God's people. Six, he must, verse 6 says he must not be a recent convert. Right? So we see, not, we see he must not be a recent convert. Why is that? Because he may be, become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And this is so true because when you first learn biblical knowledge, it puffs you up. Right? Where you think, hey, I know more or I have a position now. So uh, it's not talking about knowledge. It's talking about spiritual maturity, and it's true. It's so true. You know, when I first studied the doctrines of grace, I became a cage-stage Calvinist. I wasn't preaching Jesus to you. I was preaching the other JC, John Calvin, and then Jesus Christ second. Are you a Calvinist? Oh, okay, now you have to receive Christ. It's the other way around, right? Doctrine can puff up. The other thing is, when I was 30-something years old, when I was 30, around 30 years old, I think Pastor Jackson was already talking to me, mentoring me. You know, he would, he would allude to certain things. Like, maybe God would have you do this. I saw it in his eyes. Other deacons talked to me. You know, I, I knew the, the expectation is maybe one day, Hanley, you'd be the senior pastor. But right away, I knew at 30 years old, I didn't have the maturity. And so you hear about in, in, in the larger churches where they want the younger face, so they put up the 30-year-old guy, and the guy crumbles under the pressure. Why? Because there's things that are learned over time. There's things that, that you can't, not only can you be a not new convert, but you need to grow in Christ. You need to put yourself under mentorship, and you need the church to affirm you. And so that's why not a recent convert. And then a good reputation. Uh, and this just means a, a good public reputation. When it talks about falling into the disgrace and the snare of the devil, Paul gets specific. And once again, there's greed, right? Because in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, it, it tells you exactly what the snare is. Now, the snare can be many things. It can be sexual immorality. But let me read this to you. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, it says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. It's the same idea. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And this is why the false teachers were after people's money. That's why you cannot be a lover of money. So please, church, take care of your pastors reasonably. And one major way to avoid Satan's trap, and I have to wrap it up. I know I'm going to land the plane soon. You know, in the black church, when they say that, that means they're going to go another 10 minutes. They're like, I got to be in my seat now. But, and then they go for another hour. <laughs> and the people just, just, it's just awesome. And then they sing at the end. It's contentment. The grass always seems greener. I confess to you, you know, I complain. 
sometimes I, I look at the majority culture church, the big majority culture churches. They have like 25, 30 pastors on staff. They have counseling pastor, executive pastor, you name it, small group pastor. And so the senior pastor, the lead pastor, they just they have a lot of time to preach, teach, and, and lead and things like that. And so the grass always seems greener. But when I, when, when I talk to some of my friends in those situations, there's so much pressure that they're under. Uh, I remember asking one of them, hey, you memorized your sermons. It's awesome. You walk around on stage and, you know, drinking your coffee and you're still faithful and preaching God's word and you're walking around. Like, how, do you, how do you have time to memorize and internalize your sermon? They're like, brother, we got, conf- we got like these confidence monitors. I'm like, oh, my church would never buy those. <clears throat> You know, confidence monitors is meaning it's, it's, it's a monitor you look down and your script is there. Because there's so much pressure and, and they're like, brother, you don't understand. Yes, I have an executive pastor, but when I sit before my board, if the numbers are down, if the seats are like post-COVID, if the seats are not as filled, I might lose my job. I'm like, really? I'm like, you know, in my church cultural context, if a pastor is faithful in character, if a pastor preaches God's word, if a pastor does weddings and funerals and counsels people, it's actually a dishonor. You lose face. It's shameful to fire that pastor. You would never do it. The church would come together and say, how do we help the pastor? That, that, that actually in this church context, if a pastor simply does what he's called to do, the people would say, that's a noble task. So the grass is always greener on the other side. Both churches have strengths and weaknesses in every culture. And I'm sure that's what you struggle with. Oh, you know, someone else's job, someone else's family, someone else's house, someone else's lifestyle. Just remember this. The grass is always greener on the other side. Underneath bright green grass is just chemically infused fertilizer. So that's colloquialism for it's the same fertilizer. Wherever you go, it's the same stuff underneath. People will tell you. And just remember that. So the secret to not falling into the snare of the devil and the trap of the devil is what? Contentment. A pastor's contentment is the most important. These are the people God called you to serve. This is in this season. This is what I've given you. Shepherd the flock of God among you with love. Not domineering, not out of compulsion, but willingly as the Lord would have you. And wait, because when the chief shepherd appears, you know, he, he will exalt you at his right time, right? First Peter chapter 5. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And I think we can all learn from this, that we all need to be spiritually content. Big idea this morning is that Christ has entrusted into, uh, trusted the oversight of every local church to a team, a plurality of qualified pastors who are members of that church. I didn't get to touch on that last point. But that last point of that is that there's a temptation, and again, I'm not being critical, okay? I just, I'm just confessing to you. Sometimes in my younger days, what I dreamed of. There's some uh, traveling speakers and evangelists, Christian celebrities, and they don't have to mess with people. They just go from stadium to stadium, church to church, speaking. And we hope that they belong to a local church. Because when you go room to room, church to church, speaking every week, and people call you pastor, how do, does anyone know that you are qualified? I'm going to use a name because it's so public, Ravi Zacharias. How could anybody would have known his private life? He was never home. I don't know what his local church was. These are lessons we must learn. A pastor only carries the title of the pastor in his church. Why? Because in that church, those pastors are kept accountable over the years. People say, yeah, yeah, my pastor who preaches to me every week, we observe that he continues to meet the qualifications to the best of his ability. That's why it's dangerous when you have celebrity pastor culture and no one's keeping them accountable. This is also where you see in some of the bigger churches, they have a celebrity pastor where they, then they get a board of trustees where you have all these other celebrity pastors being their board. And you're like, what happened? And they're like, the, the board 
overseeing the, that celebrity pastor. They're not even members of the church. And they call them global elders. That's whack. The people who keep the pastors and affirm their pastors affirm for ministry is you. It's the members of the church. And so Christ has entrusted the oversight of every local church to a team of qualified pastors who are members of that church. A pastor must be a member of his church and must be present enough for the members to affirm their character. So that's what I say. We have a great team of pastors, but we are nothing without you. That's why we say we love you more than you know. We're okay pastors. You guys can say we're good pastors. We're okay pastors because you guys are an excellent, great church. Above all, and I know I'm over time, pastors and the flock need to submit to Christ. So if you don't know Christ this morning, please come to the altar. Please go to the Next Steps table afterwards and come talk to us. Come talk to us. Jesus Christ came as a good shepherd 2,000 years ago, died for our sins, rose again from the dead. God raised him, and if you confess that you're a sinner in need of God's grace, he will shepherd you. He will make up for any shortcomings of any of us as human beings. He will change your life. He will never let you down. He will never abuse his authority. He will love you, and he will build you up. And so if that's you, we want you to receive Christ today. Confess that you're a sinner in need of God's grace. Surrender to, to the good Lord, Jesus Christ, and he will change you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our church because our church is filled with members who are faithful. We thank you for our church who takes care of and loves pastors. At the same time, Lord, we as pastors understand the high calling. We want to pray. We thank you for our pastors, all of our pastors who strive, Lord, to serve you well and to serve people well. Help us because we know, Lord, that there will be nothing that brings a bigger smile to the devil's face than to see any of us be disqualified and fall into any form of temptation. I pray, Lord, that you would protect us as pastors. Help us above all, Lord, to continue to be humble so that we would continue to surrender to you as our shepherd the chief shepherd. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.